this is Nick Wright here with Zachary Fillingham, Managing Editor of Geopolitical Monitor. And today we're going to discuss the EU Parliament elections, uh, specifically discussing key takeaways. And this relates to the article called on the website, EU Parliament Election Key Takeaways. You can check that out at geopoliticalmonitor.com. Uh, so Zach, tell us a little bit about the recent elections uh, and what some of the encouraging trends are for Brussels uh, in the latest round of elections. Okay, well, um, yeah, so we use the concept encouraging trends kind of as shorthand for the pro-EU crowd. Obviously, in the lead up to these elections, uh, there was a big question about how well the populist and far-right blocs would do. There was a lot of hype about them possibly producing an electoral wave and becoming a force in this European parliament. So I think the most encouraging trend for Brussels is that this populist revolt did not come about. Uh, there were certain good results for certain far-right and populist countries in certain national contexts, but it, it definitely was not a continent-wide wave. And the coalition math that we're looking at right now um, suggests that the, the populist and far-right coalition, the political groups, will be on the outside looking in uh, for the governing coalition. So... Uh, just broadly looking at the results, the pro-EU parties took about two-thirds two -thirds of the seats in Parliament, and the populists overall just added um, 34 seats from their 2014 showing. So obviously that's, a, that's an improvement, but it's definitely not the sort of world-beating trend that some were calling for. Um, and when we look at the that, when we look at the establishment blocks, uh, so basically there are two centrist blocks, uh, political groups that have generally come together in a grand coalition uh, to to govern together. One is center right, and it's the European People's Party or EPP. One is center left; it's the Progressive Alliance of Socialists and Democrats or SND. Um, and so when people gauge the success or failure of the establishment, they look at these two blocks. Both blocks suffered losses in this recent election. Uh, the EPP lost 41 seats and the SND lost 46 seats. But they're still the two biggest, biggest uh, political groups in Parliament with um, 180 seats for the EPP and 145 seats for the SND. So we can see that the establishment blocs were still, like they're still the biggest force in parliament, but they're no longer in and of themselves able to control the agenda. So another positive trend um, when we read between the lines of these results is that the whole Brexit ordeal seems to have taken some of the momentum out of populism uh, and the rise of far right in Europe. Uh, so if you divide each country into pro- if you look, start to look at the national results and you, you divide the countries into pro-anti-EU parties, you see that the pro-EU parties did much better compared to 2014. Um, in, some, in some cases, this is pretty stark, like in the Netherlands, uh, which basically flipped uh, its, its pro and anti in 2014. It was, I think, about 75% of the seats were, were anti-EU parties, um, and that's flipped this time. I think a lot of that is the negative example of Brexit. Uh, you also see some of the some of the populist parties that actually did very well in this recent election, like National Rally in France, which which actually took the most vote, narrowly edging out the Macron uh, La Republique en Marche. 
Um, even National Rally is no longer directly pushing for the quote-unquote Frexit uh, or the France's removal from, or exit from the European Union. So even the more extreme parties are no longer pushing to leave the EU. Um, so when we look, just parsing through some more results, uh, the members of the ENF, the European, the Europe of Nations, what's that, the... Europe of Nations and Freedom, okay. Um, broadly speaking, it suffered some major setbacks. It lost 75% of support in Netherlands, as I uh, touched down on, 60% in Denmark, and 13% in Austria. Um, so the establishment held, the center held. That's one big And why do you think that, that is, Zach? Uh, why did the wave that some people predicted not materialize? Well, I think, you know, on one hand, um, on one hand, it's a bit of like media hype. Uh, I think that like basically it was being built up into something it never necessarily could be because as, as we're going to see further, uh, further along, like, um, uh, you know, the, like there's still lots of things to be um, optimistic about if you're on the far right, like the, the populist parties did very quite well in certain contexts. But um, they didn't do enough across the continent to become uh, a sort of force that can set the agenda in the European Parliament. And I think, uh, as I alluded to, I think a lot of that has to do with Brexit. Um, a lot of it has to do with the sort of difficulties that the United Kingdom have encountered in extricating themselves from the European Union such that it's hard to sell that as an electoral platform right now. It's hard to point to Brexit and say, um, oh, look, this is what we want for France. This is what we want for the Netherlands, because it's, it's total chaos right now. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not what you want to emulate. So maybe, I mean, just totally hypothetically speaking, maybe 10 years down the line, um, Brexit will have been carried through successfully. And um, I don't know, it will... The UK will have trade agreements with the world and will be thriving outside of the European Union. Maybe at that point, these populist parties can point and say, look, you know, and we should leave the EU, blah, blah, blah. But um, at this point in time, at this present juncture, it was a hard sell. Um, and one more one more positive thing. And I would say, actually, this is this is probably the most positive takeaway for Brussels is that turnout increased dramatically from previous years. Um, in 2014, it was 43%. And then this year, it was 51%. And this is the first time that turnout has, has uh, increased in 20 years. It, it had been decreasing every single election since 1979. Interesting. And so what are uh, some of the more encouraging, uh, not so encouraging <coughs> trends uh, as a result of the election? things that we might okay. be concerned or worried about. Okay, well, I mean, like, you know, this is all political, right? So it's it's not so encouraging trends in the sense of, um, from the point of view of, of a pro-EU, from the point of view of Brussels. So as far as um, this sort of status quo point of view, um, the, some, some of the populist parties did quite well in certain national contexts. Uh, particularly in Italy, Hungary, Poland, and the United Kingdom, which, as we know, is a big story. 
Um, the UK result went overwhelmingly to the Brexit party, which took 29 seats and 30% of the vote. Um, so, and that's another one where it seems like a stark, you know, like, like that's a stark result for UK politics. That's going to resonate in UK politics. And, and there's already indications that uh, Nigel Farage will take that success and, and bring it into a general election and kind of overturn the status quo of the two um, dominant establishment parties in UK uh, politics. But as it stands now, even though if you take that whole vote in the UK and you divide it into pro or anti-EU, um, the pro-EU vote still narrowly edges out the anti-EU vote. It's just that the anti-EU vote, EU vote was um, represented by the Brexit party one party and the pro-EU vote was split between several parties, including the Greens, who did quite well. So that was one um, not-so-encouraging trend. Another one is that turnout was actually quite low in certain countries. For example, Portugal, where it was 30%, Czech, 28%, Slovakia, 22%, and the Netherlands. Um, there's still no consensus on how to choose the EU Commission president. And uh, the next EU parliament will be fractured. And it's theoretically possibly harder to achieve a consensus in the absence of a grand coalition. And why is this important? What are some of the, the takeaways uh, that make a difference uh, both in the European Union, but also internationally? Okay, so I would say that the, the, the major lesson here is that voters are tired of conventional politics. This is not a surprising revelation to any of us at this point in the game. But whereas most of this uh, insurgent anti-establishment feeling was generally being funneled to populist or far-right parties, now it seems to be funnel, it's, it seems to be getting funneled to other places, uh, particularly, um, in this election, the ALDE, which is the Alliance of uh, Liberals and Democrats of Europe, and the Green European Free Alliance. So basically, um, it was being funneled away from the establishment parties throughout Europe, and but into pro-EU, more liberal vehicles. So this is, a, this is an interesting trend, and we might see it duplicated elsewhere in the uh, Western world, because... I think that uh, there's a lot of there. There are a lot of people who are kind of disgusted or, or disappointed with their their establishment parties, whether it's uh, conservatives, Labour in UK, Democrat, Republican, United States, et cetera, et cetera. And the the sort of far right populist strain were the first ones to sort of offer uh, a potential alternative, at least in the eyes of the voter. But as, as these alternatives are increasingly proven to be maybe not what these original voters had in mind, um, and uh, sort of populists are running into various governing problems throughout the world, uh, they want to sort of, they want to channel these energies elsewhere. So, and, and you know, as the, the climate becomes, the climate change becomes a bigger political issue throughout the world, um, it's quite possible that these energies and these votes will be diverted towards um, more environmental parties, particularly the, the green parties throughout uh, the Western world. And any so, thoughts on uh, who the next commission president might be? Um, 
right now it's totally up in the air. There's this matter of the spitzing candidate or lead candidate process that needs to be resolved. Basically, there's a debate between the parliament and the EU council. The EU council is the, the collection of all the EU heads of government. And the parliament, obviously, the elected parliament that we're talking about right now. So the parliamentary leaders, they, they have been advancing this process called the Spitzing Candidate uh, system, which translates to lead candidate. And that is that basically every political group in parliament has a list of candidates that they want for president. And uh, the largest group gets to select the EU Commission president. Uh, so that right now that would that would technically be the EPP, and their candidate is uh, this man named Manfred Fieber, um, who is basically a lifelong uh, EU bureaucrat. He's never held national office. Um, and if he were elected as the EU Commission president, he'd be the first one who has not served as either a national leader or a minister level politician um, in, in one of the uh, EU nations. However, um, there's a lot of pushback against the lead candidate system from the EU Council, from the heads of states. Right now, it is represented by uh, President Macron out of France who um, is opposed to the Fieber nomination as EU Commission President. He has his own um, uh, potential candidates. And, and so basically this boils down as a power struggle between the Parliament and the Council. Um, the Parliament argues that uh, the, the lead candidate system gives the EU Commission President uh, democratic credibility because it links it to the actual um, electoral will of the people of Europe. And the other side is that, it, like the EU Council argument, maybe not elaborated as such, but uh, the argument would be that um, keeping it in control of the heads of states allows for more sort of nuanced and controllable um, horse trading in the process of, of electing. Uh, the president. So it looks like right now that the lead candidate system is not going to be used this time around. It was only ever used once before for Jean-Claude Juncker. So right now we're seeing these sort of usual behind the scenes uh, negotiations between the various parties. There are several candidates who are up, including uh, Michel Barnier, Franz Timmermans, and Margaret Vestager. But we won't, we, uh, it's impossible to know at this point until, uh, basically until the results are uh, announced. It's the nature of the opaque, behind-the-scenes dealings that uh, people often criticize about the European Union. Interesting. Well, thanks so much, Zach, for a summary on the EU parliamentary elections. It'll be interesting to follow this as things progress and a new uh, commission president is elected. Uh, to our listeners, again, you can check out the article on our website, EU Parliament Elections Key Takeaways at geopoliticalmonitor.com. And looking forward to next time. Talk to you then.